Well, welcome to you all. We are few in number this Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. Um, and the announced topic today, we're here at the Integral Yoga Institute, is, um, is Integral Yoga and Archetypal Psychology. Um, and I really see this as a conversation with, um, with you and with myself um, about two or three deep themes that we all face in our lives. And I love to um, start with a quote from my friend and colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen, who said something so beautiful 10 years ago to me, just in passing, that I've never forgotten it. And she said that in her view, that the purpose of life was to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. That the purpose of life was to grow in wisdom and learn to love better. And of course, that's a very ancient teaching. There's nothing specific to Rachel about that. I was Googling it this morning, and so there's a Buddhist collection called Growing in Love and Wisdom. And, uh, and it's a very ancient teaching. But there is, in fact, in the great traditions, a third piece. It's not just love and wisdom. And the third piece is work or will. So it's a triad, uh, or you could say that out of the dyad of love and wisdom, uh, that a third particle, participle, must emerge. And that participle is what we actually do. It's one thing to talk about growing in love, which is an internal state. It's another to talk about growing in wisdom, which is an internal state. But what do we actually do in the world? Because if we don't actually enact something in the world, it's incomplete. And that uh, completion, if you will, of, uh, if you wish to say, masculine wisdom and feminine love, which would be two archetypes, but, but, but wisdom and love are by no means uh, specific to gender in any way, shape, or form. But they come together um, in what Jack Cornfield calls the wise heart uh, to guide us in our work and what we actually do in the world. Um, which is a manifestation of our will. You could speak of the work of the heart, or the work of the mind, and the work of the hands. So those are sort of three dimensions of us. And I've been fascinated um, by how that triad of love, wisdom, and work, or will, is repeated over and over and over again in all the great spiritual, religious, philosophical traditions. And it seems to me particularly apt, because here we are between uh, yesterday when the Christ within us, I'm going to speak in terms of universal archetypes, the Christ within us um, experiences his passion and dies forlorn and with a sense of having been abandoned on the cross. And Easter, when the Christ within us is reborn, this is also Passover, the movement from imprisonment to freedom. Um, it is spring. Uh, it is, uh, it's no accident that these great uh, holidays in uh, many traditions take place uh, 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 with the celebration of spring. So... 
there is this deep resonance biologically within us all uh, between what is happening in our bodies and this emergence of spring, this emergence of, re- of new life, um, and this constant transformation of our understanding of what love, wisdom, and will are in each of our lives. So um, the thought I would love to leave with all of us um, today is the question for you, for me, at this moment in our lives, what is dying? What is being left behind because its use for us is complete? And what is being born? And how can we have the wisdom and the kindness and the skill, love, wisdom, and will, uh, how can we have the wisdom and the kindness and the skill to forgive ourselves, to forgive each other, to have compassion for the fact that every single one of us struggles constantly between the different dimensions of ourselves? And how can we support that which is being born to be born within us um, in these three dimensions of our being? What we love, uh, what we see or believe in in the world, our wisdom, uh, what we intend, the power of our intention through the work of our hands, which is will. I'm going to read some poems in the course of our conversation today. And I'm going to start with a poem that I read quite often by Hafiz. And I think my intention in reading the same poems again and again in different readings is because each time I understand them more deeply. So this is a poem by the great Sufi poet Hafiz. It goes like this. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely burst you wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's gratuity will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul into God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. Now just reflect on that poem for a moment. The first first part, light will someday split you open. And then love. So here we have light, which is wisdom, and love, the two polarities of that. Um, 
and then uh, look at from a sacred crevice in your body, feminine, a bow rises each night, bow masculine, night feminine, and shoots your soul unto God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one, the Dionysian dimension, as opposed to the Apollonian dimension, which is, you know, pure light. You know, so Hafiz, Rumi, these are Dionysian uh, poets. Um, these are poets who celebrate uh, the dimension of the Christ that Carl Jung spoke of when he said that the Christ was originally the god of the vine. You know? So there is in all of these complexes a dimension of the Apollonian, the sun, the rising dimension that brings us up into abstraction, into spirit. And then there is the dimension of the Dionysian, which takes place in darkness and brings us down into the dark, fertile dampness of our souls. And in archetypal psychology, I think what a critical dimension of what it brings to our understanding of the human psyche is that most of us in the world today think of ourselves as body, mind, body emotion, mind, spirit. All right. And so, you know, we want to develop, uh, we want to heal physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So when we think of ourselves that way, think of what that mind map does. So you have the body, you have the feelings, the mind is superior to the feelings, and the spirit is superior to both the body, the, the uh, emotions, the mind, and, and, uh, the, both, and, and the feelings, as I said. So... Uh, so what happens there is that spirit is experienced in an Apollonian sense as something um, that requires of us more than almost any human being is able to be. It requires a level of uh, sort of abstract goodness and perfection, which is not who we are as human beings. It is not who we were designed to be given that we were built on a primate frame. And, you know, given uh, that, uh, that all of us are infinitely complex. Um, and so we find in Hafiz this uh, celebration of the Dionysian dimension of ourselves, uh, recognizing both light and love, and recognizing the friend, uh, uh, meaning the, the divine, uh, brings this life-giving radiance to us, uh, and that we have within us all the marvels in creation, not a monotheistic single dimension, but all the marvels of creation. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love, conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. You see, if I talk to you in cognitive terms about yoga and archetypal psychology, uh, we can have a very interesting mental conversation. But when I read you Rumi, it evokes a completely different experience. As Brother David Steindl Rast often says, the things that can carry the full freight of these depth experiences are sacred texts and poetry. And it is in sacred texts and poetry, or music, you could add. Uh, last night, my wife Charles and I went to the, uh, 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 the Grace Cathedral and listened to... Uh, uh, the uh, New College uh, Oxford Choir uh, uh, sing the, uh, uh, the Passion of St. John. And, and again, in that cathedral, the power of that music to evoke in us an experience that is completely different from what anybody could say to us from the pulpit. So there's that dimension of 
experiential knowing that we can only come to in certain ways, not from the cognitive mind level. I'm going to read a couple more poems because I think it really speaks to us in this way. This one, this one is by Naomi Shihab Nye, and it's become my favorite poem recently. Um, and uh, um, it's called Famous. I'll just read it to you, and then we can talk a little about it. The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous, or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. See, I love that. I love that. Because I think as human beings, we're not particularly well designed to be enlightened. We're not particularly well designed to be good in a perfect way. But if we're fortunate, we find a way to be of service. We find a way to be useful. And that sense of servant leadership, of um, simply having found something in our lives that we can do well, doesn't require us to be perfect. It doesn't require us to be more than we are. So I think of it as sort of the buttonhole theology or the buttonhole philosophy, you know? I just have come to the, you know, I'm in my 70th year and I'm not going to become enlightened, I know that. I'm certainly never going to be very good at being good, I know that. But I can be useful, that's something I trust in myself and I'm, I'm grateful uh, to be a, a buttonhole theologist. I'll read one-third, and, and then I'll stop reading poems for a little bit. This is from Rilke, The Book of Hours. Such a great poet. God talks to each of us as he creates us, then walks with us silently out of night. But the words spoken before we start, those cloudy words are these. Sent forth by your senses, Go to the very edge of your desire, invest me. Back behind the things grow as fire, so that their shadows lengthened will always and completely cover me. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Only press on, 
no feeling is final. Don't let yourself be cut off from me. Nearby is that country known as life. You will recognize it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. It's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness in the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more, and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And of course, who is this? This, this, this other is the friend, it is God, it is that divine spark in each of us. And the question is how each of us, male or female, weaves the ill-matched threads of our life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. How do we do that with gratitude? How do we take those ill-matched threads, which can tear us apart, and with gratitude weave them together so that in the softness of the evening we receive the full beauty of that oneness. So, when I think of love, wisdom, and will, you think back, um, what did Freud say life came down to? He said love and work. What did Rollo May say life came down to? He said love and will, which is the same thing. Uh, In yoga, what are the three principal yogas? Bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, and karma yoga, which are the yogas of love, wisdom, and will. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, what is uh, asked of us? Uh, Mika 6 8. Um, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with thy God? So there they are again. Justice is wisdom, loving kindness is love, and walking humbly is will or or, uh, servant leadership. If you think in the Christian tradition of faith, hope, and love, what is faith? Faith is that deep knowing, the wisdom of Brother David Steindl Rass says, trust in the universe. Um, Hope, again, Brother David, Hope is what you have when all your hopes have been shattered. Um, And then love. um, And love is the greatest of these three. Um, uh, Carl Jung talks about where power exists, there you do not find love, and where love exists, there you do not find power. This relationship between um, power and love um, reflects... um, two dimensions of the triad of love, work, and will. So you find people, so for example, Freud has love and work but doesn't mention will. Rollo May has love and a will uh, uh, but doesn't mention work. So you see sort of these 
things weaving in and out of each other in tradition after tradition. Um, here's a, a beautiful uh, quote from uh, Emerson's essay on the intellect and truth. Emerson was so extraordinary. He was, uh, Richard Grossman says, a Taoist before the Tao Te Ching was actually translated into English. And really, perhaps the seminal American uh, wisdom thinker in the greatest depth. So listen to what he says. He says, we do not determine what we think, what we will think. We only open our senses, clear away as we can, all obstruction from the fact, and suffer the intellect to see. We have little control over our thoughts. That is, the archetypes keep dancing through us in different forms. Uh, the different uh, dimensions of ourselves keep dancing through us. We have very little control over that. We are prisoners of ideas or archetypes. They catch us for the moment into their heaven and so fully engage us that we take no thought for the morrow. Gaze like children without an effort uh, uh, to make them our own. By and by, we fall out of that rapture, bethink us where we have been, what we have seen, and repeat as truly as we can what we have beheld. As far as we can, we recall these ecstasies. We carry away in the ineffaceable memory the result, and all men and all the ages confirm it. It is called truth. But the moment we cease to report and attempt to correct and contrive, it is not truth. All our progress is an unfolding, like the vegetable bud. You have first an instinct, then an opinion, then a knowledge, as the plant has root, bud, and fruit. Trust the instinct to the end, though you can render no reason. It is vain to hurry it. By trusting it to the end, it shall ripen into truth, and you shall know why you believe. And then at the end, uh, he, he, ta- he says this. Uh, he says, but let us end these didactics. I will not, though the subject might provoke it, speak to the open question between truth and love. I shall not presume to interfere in the old politics of the skies. The cherubim know the most, the seraphim love the most. The gods shall settle their own quarrels. In other words, this question in Emerson is, uh, he's not going to try to settle. I mean, he knew the literature. He's not going to try to settle the open question between truth and love. He's not going to interfere in the old politics of the skies, that the cherubim know the most, which is wisdom, the seraphim love the most, the gods will settle their own quarrels as to which, whether love or wisdom is greater. You know, this is a very ancient question because love moves us in one way. Um, it moves us uh, from the heart. Uh, it moves us from what we are simply drawn to, that we can't explain it. Wisdom moves us in a whole different way. Wisdom moves us from that place in us that seeks to say, okay, I understand that I feel all these feelings, but I have to be wise about how I'm going to be in the world. I have to be skillful about this. And so in each of us, uh, uh, heart and mind, uh, love and wisdom are not easily reconciled. And the ultimate uh, dimension of this is, okay, well, what do we actually do? with the struggle within us. And as Emerson says, he's not going to try to interfere in the politics of the sky. Um, 
Here, I've, I've mentioned before these concepts of the Dionysian and the Apollonian uh, in each of us, the Dionysian being uh, the fertile darkness and the Apollonian being the sun. And uh, here's uh, the wiki entry on Nietzsche, who was the great philosopher of the Dionysian and the Apollonian. And it, it says, uh, the relationship of the Apollonian and the Dionysian juxtapositions is apparent. Nietzsche claimed in The Birth of Tragedy, uh, in the interplay of Greek tragedy, the tragic hero of the drama, the main protagonist, struggles to make order in the Apollonian sense of his unjust and chaotic Dionysian fate, although he dies unfulfilled in the end. For the audience of such a drama, Nietzsche claimed, this tragedy allows us to sense an underlying essence, what he called the primordial unity, which revives our Dionysian nature, which is almost indescribably pleasurable. Um, and so, uh, different from Kant's idea of the sublime, the Dionysian is an all-inclusive rather than alienating to the viewer as a sublimating experience. The sublime needs critical distance, while the Dionysian demands a closeness of experience. According to Nietzsche, the critical distance which separates man from his closed emotions originates in Apollonian ideals, which in turn separate him from his essential connection with self. The Dionysian embraces the chaotic nature of such experiences, all important, not just on its own, but is ultimately connected with the Apollonian. The Dionysian magnifies man, but only so far as he realizes that he is one and the same with all ordered human experience. The godlike unity of the Dionysian experience is of the utmost importance in viewing the Dionysian as it is related to the Apollonian, because it emphasizes the harmony that can be found within one's chaotic experience. So here you have Nietzsche, who really struggled with these questions. Great psychologist, profoundly influential to both Freud and Jung, you know, one of the most important uh, uh, philosophical psychologists of uh, the 19th century. And at the heart of everything, again, what do you find? Again, you find love and wisdom, in, and uh, you have uh, in, in both the Apollonian, the, the sunlit, ordered aspect, uh, abstract, uh, you know, we know how it's all supposed to be and let's live that way. And then you have, uh, you know, uh, the soft body of the self, the dark experience of the soul, uh, what, what we are drawn to love uh, in ourselves, whether it be nature, whether it be work, whether it be another human being or friends. And so we constantly struggle with these two dimensions of ourselves. Again, the politics of the skies are unsettled in Nietzsche as they are in Emerson. Here's a third example of, uh, of uh, this uh, dimension of the relationship of love, wisdom, and will. This comes from Rudolf Steiner and from the anthroposophical tradition. Uh, and it's uh, from a uh, Steiner volume from the Western Esoteric Masters series. And, uh, and Steiner uh, says, uh, Rudolf Steiner, the great, uh, uh, the very great esoteric uh, philosopher and psychologist, the equivalent in Europe of Edgar Cayce in the United States. Uh, Steiner says, 
Love is for the world what the sun is for outer life. That's the Apollonian. No soul could live if love departed from the world. It is the moral sun of the world. To spread love over the earth is the greatest degree possible to promote love. That alone is wisdom. When we practice love, cultivate love, creative forces pour into the world. Besides love, there are two other powers in the world, might and wisdom. God is uttermost love, unalloyed love, is born, as it were, out of the substance of love. God is pure love, not supreme wisdom, not supreme might. Love is the foundation of whatever is creative. Progress is obtained through wisdom and strength. So let's just, again, focus on that. This is Steiner, uh, you know, a great student of Goethe, uh, uh, lived at the same time as Carl Jung. Uh, they knew each other. They didn't like each other. Um, Steiner, the esotericist, Jung, the closet esotericist, who tried to dress his psychology up as a science. And so Steiner, who, like Jung, they, these, these people knew... Uh, the ancient literature, new, the philosophical literature, they, were, they lived at a time where it was still possible for human beings, late 19th century, early 20th century, to really have a grasp of the whole of a literature. And what, are they, what is he saying? He's saying love is of the essence. And then there are two other powers, might, which is will, and wisdom, right? And Steiner says... God is essentially love. But on the other hand, love is the foundation of what is creative, but progress is actually obtained through wisdom and strength, strength being will or work. So again, I'm suggesting that you find these three issues of love, wisdom, uh, and will again and again and again. And what I want to submit to you is that as we ask ourselves, as spring comes upon us, however we celebrate it, these three things are in each of us. You know, what is the purpose of our lives but to grow in wisdom and learn to love better? And since we are constantly in flux and since we are constantly changing, our old ideas about how we grow in wisdom, how we learn to love better, how we become more skillful with the work of our hands. These are constantly changing. We are never the same. We're constantly being reborn in some way. And each year with spring, it's a great cycle. And we can ask ourselves again, how can I love better? How can I grow in wisdom? How can the work of my hands reflect that love and wisdom? So I want to talk a little bit now about archetypal psychology and yoga in a, a more classical sense. Um, so in the strict sense of the word, archetypal psychology was a psychology founded by a Jungian uh, uh, practitioner named James Hillman, who lived from 1926 to 2011. And he was uh, uh, the first director of the Jung Institute in Zurich. And... Um, he, uh, he loved Jung's work, but he felt a need to go beyond it. And, and what I want to say right now is that I've been reading Hillman for the last nine months intensively. And um, I've come 
both to be grateful for his contribution, but to feel it's important to go beyond it. So I'm going to try to describe what Hellman tried to do. He said that he, uh, as a friend of mine says, that Hillman loved Jung's psychology but not his metaphysics. And what he meant by that is uh, that Jung, um, what Jung brought into contemporary psychology was an understanding of the archetypes within us, all the different dimensions of us that are archetypes of our being. Uh, But Jung had a belief that these archetypes of our being held together within a oneness that he called the self. So there was a comprehensive sense of the self in Jung that, um, that in some sense ordered the archetypes. If we think in Apollonian and Dionysian terms, the oneness is Apollonian. It creates a centeredness in which the archetypes move in and out. Uh, So you could say that that oneness, in some sense, is um, uh, like the Christ, uh, like Krishna. Uh, uh, It has a dimension of a monotheistic vision of, of an ordered element in life. Hillman explicitly said that his archetypal psychology was polytheistic and soul-centered. So he thought that contemporary life put too much emphasis on the Apollonian and the, and, you know, the single moral code. And he wanted to really focus on the experience of the soul. Remember the difference between spirit and soul which through which all these different archetypes move. And Hillman had several metaphors for uh, the soul, which are memorable. One which is very beautiful is that he compared the soul to, uh, a, a, he compared the, the archetypal space of the imaginal realm to a jungle. And that in this jungle were all these different animals or entities. And that he didn't want to come in with the monotheistic ego trying to improve itself by taming or managing all the different creatures that were in this jungle. He wanted to go into the jungle as an observer. And he simply wanted to witness the different archetypes and to befriend them so that as they move through our consciousness, remember Emerson saying we have no control over our thoughts, as they move toward our, through our consciousness, we can understand these different archetypes. Um, And uh, this is where, for me, and this is very much a question of personal taste. Uh, It's not that one is right and one is wrong. I find myself siding with Jung rather than Hillman, that I believe that for myself, uh, to experience an overarching sense of oneness as in, in myself, uh, is a critical dimension of, of being with the archetypes as they move in and out of my experience. So that as different dimensions of me move in and out of my experience, if there isn't some superordinate sense of oneness, 
I tend to get dizzy or car sick or something like, or motion sick. You know, I, I, I need some kind of center. Uh, Hillman really dispensed with the oneness. He saw it as one more image, one more archetype. But he didn't privilege that archetype of oneness over other archetypes. So, so that is um, kind of an essential critique of Hillman's work that, that many people who value his work come to. Hillman credited two people with uh, the origin of, uh, of his archetypal psychology. One was Jung, and the other was a, a French uh, theorist and student of the great Sufi uh, teacher Ibn Arabi named Henry Corbin. And, um, and uh, Corbin loved Ibn Arabi, a, a very great Sufi teacher, because Ibn Arabi saw what he called the imaginal realm as the space where human beings go up into their imagination and the archetypes that they see there are not, as with Jung, just projections of the inner self, but they actually represent divine powers that reach down to meet us in this imaginal space. So that rather than Jung was ambiguous about this as to whether the archetypes had independent existence outside of our psyches. So Jung recognized that they, within our psyches, that these, these different archetypes of our experience, whether they be a father figure or a mother figure or a wise person or a wise woman or a dark force or whatever they are, he recognized that Jung recognized that these imaginal entities had independent volition within our consciousness. And he certainly recognized that there was a collective unconscious that was uh, visible in, in folklore and mythology and, and, uh, and religions um, where these archetypes proved their independent reality because they existed collectively as well as individually within us. But what Jung never said, which Ibn Arabi said and Corbin said, Henry Corbin said, and admiring Ibn Arabi, is that these forces are not just projections of individual or collective unconscious. They actually exist. They have independent existence. And they come down to meet us in the imaginal realm. So, for example, for Ibn Arabi, Jesus, the Christ, was one of the great archetypes that came to meet him. Ibn Arabi experienced uh, a whole set of the great spiritual teachers of all time who came and talked to him personally. And so the question is, when Ibn Arabi experiences the presence of the Christ, is this just a projection of his inner being? Or is the Christ experience something that in some independent sense actually exists? And that was the place where there was a difference between Jung, who was ambiguous about this, 
and Ibn Arabi and Corbin, who were very clear that this imaginal realm really was a place where the divine came down and the human came up, and this is where discourse was possible. So that in Ibn Arabi's view, when we pray or when we meditate or when we seek guidance, that guidance isn't only coming from the archetype of the wise old man within us personally or the archetype of the wise old man within us collectively. That archetype actually comes from a dimension of um, the universe uh, where it actually exists, where it has independent existence. So Hillman, in a sense, some people say, took Jung and took a postmodern turn where he deconstructed any, you know, pre-existent wholeness and just said, look, they're all different uh, projections. Um, and therefore, the self doesn't really exist. It's just one more projection. But he credited Corbin, uh, who actually, uh, uh, in some senses, was closer to Jung because Ibn Arabi believed that these forces were very real and that there was a centeredness. I'm sorry if this is a little too abstract, but this is what I'm thinking about. So, so um, Thomas Moore, who's one of Hillman's principal disciples, very good introduction to Hillman, describes Hillman's teaching as portraying the psyche as inherently multiple, that the psyche or soul has many directions and sources of meaning, and that this one can feel as an ongoing state of conflict, a struggle with one's daimons, the different forces within us. But the reason that it's valuable to recognize that these different, uh, Hillman particularly used Greek mythology as his uh, construct for these different archetypes, uh, According to Hillman, polytheistic psychology can give sacred differentiation to our psychic turmoil. And so, uh, so the point about if we come to recognize our own struggles in their archetypal sense, instead of just it feeling like a personal struggle that we can't resolve between different parts of ourselves, we can recognize this isn't just us alone. This is like an archetypal reality that's been going on from the beginning of time. The struggle between love and wisdom in us, the struggle between you know, different dimensions of ourselves, the struggle uh, uh, with whether there is meaning or not, the struggle with all these different things. And so what an archetypal psychology does, and I've actually come to prefer to think of an archetypal psychology not only in Hillman's postmodern uh, way, but to include all the different archetypal psychologies so that um, I don't, well, Hillman uh, said he liked uh, Jung's psychology but not his metaphysics, uh, I like Hellman's psychology, but not his metaphysics. I don't like the radical decentering he did. And so for me, what's opened up is a sense of archetypal psychology as including not only Hellman and Moore, but Joseph Campbell and uh, Jung and, and all of those who have thought in archetypal terms. Um, on the way over here, I found myself... Um, 
stopping as I drove along Route 1 from Bolinas here. And every few miles, I'd stop and make a few more notes for this talk. And I was thinking, <laughs> I literally did that. I just kept pulling over. And I was thinking, OK, what is you know the definition of an archetype is that it's a universal symbol or pattern or behavior. Uh, it's often found in myths or folklores or religions. Um, but, it, it, they, but the archetypes, uh, the, the religions where you find the archetypes fully fleshed out are polytheistic. So specifically, Greek and Hindu are good examples. Uh, but if you think about contemporary examples of archetypal psychology that really speak to us, think about the I Ching, or think about astrology, or think about alchemy, or the tarot. Um, these, are all astro these are all archetypal systems. And so why do they speak to us? We live in this more or less monotheistic world. But these systems, the I Ching, the astrology, alchemy, the tarot, and what's the name of the other... Just trying to remember the name of the uh, Gurdjieffian system that um, is one of these guys. The what? Enneagram? Yeah, the Enneagram, exactly. The Enneagram is an archetypal system also. So why do these, why do these systems speak to us? You know, they speak to us because um, we, we've lost connection uh, with archetypal reality, our psychology today, you know, behavioral psychology, you know, neuropsychology, uh, you know, uh, things like that, uh, or, uh, or often Buddhist psychology, they tend to um, not give us a lot of traction with the archetypes that dance through us all the time. And the thing about the I Ching, astrology, alchemy, the Tarot, the Enneagram, is that they remind us of the power of what seemed to be arbitrary. You throw the I Ching or you happen to be born on a single day. How could it possibly be that astrology gives you any real perspective? Or you, you do the Tarot and all of a sudden you have this sense, oh my God, this is amazing. Or you do the Enneagram, how could it possibly be? Well, how it could possibly be is it doesn't have to be a causal relationship. It may be a causal. Uh, it, it may work in the same way that a teaching story works uh, or a parable works. That when we throw the Qing, when we read astrology, uh, when we do the Tarot or an Enneagram, that it constellates um, a story for us at a deep archetypal level that gives sacred significance to our struggle. And you think other archetypes I've been thinking about, for example, uh, Shakespeare is just a fabulous example. Um, you know, Harold Bloom, the great literary critic and the great scholar of Shakespeare, talks about how Shakespeare invented the modern world. And when you think about uh, uh, people like Hamlet or, you know, King Lear or uh, Macbeth or any of the others. These are great archetypes. They are archetypes of human experience. And uh, Harold Bloom insists that in many ways, Hamlet and Lear and Macbeth and others are realer than most human beings, you know. That, uh, and so the question is, um, or when we listen to Bob, Denner, Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen, you know, you think about 
uh, I like to listen to Dylan's music. And you think about where does the power of Dylan's music come from? It's not because he has some cardboard cutout dimension of being good and perfect and everything. There's this constant shift in Bob Dylan between dark and light. And there's this weaving of the dark and light that goes on constantly. And we trust that because we recognize it in ourselves, that we have that constant weaving of the disparate threads of our life that somehow in gratitude Dylan brings together into a, a, a cloth of wholeness. So Shakespeare is the same thing. Shakespeare contained within himself this incredible range of voices. Uh, and that is very much an archetypal literature. So I'm suggesting to you that Hillman introduces us to a psychology uh, with his own particular metaphysics. And I'm grateful to Hillman for what he introduced me to because he took Jungian archetypal psychology out of Jung's framework and gave it a fresh new perspective. But he in turn enables me to reject his metaphysics, which are very, um, which don't have any kind of collective frame and to try to rediscover a collective frame in myself. I'll say a few more things and then we'll have a little conversation. Um, I want to talk about another great psychologist, since there are several of you here who are interested and said you were interested in psychology. And this is an Italian named Roberto Assagioli who created a psychology called psychosynthesis. And uh, psychosynthesis is a very interesting psychology. Uh, it was uh, recovered in the United States by my colleague Rachel Naomi Remen and a number of her contemporaries, Lenore Leffer and Tom Yeomans and others. And, um, and Assagioli had studied with both uh, Freud and Jung. He knew them both. But he also know, knew the Eastern traditions, and he was a great devotee of, uh, of Dante. And uh, Dante, in turn, had learned much of what he knew uh, from the Sufis, and so there was a wonderful connection to Sufi wisdom there. And the thing about Asajoli is that he has a way of describing our personalities that is so simple and so memorable that I can describe it to you in a few minutes. Um, and I've used it for many, many years before I became interested in archetypal psychology. So uh, Asajoli's image is that the self is a big circle and that within the circle of the self, there is a lower unconscious, a middle unconscious, and an upper unconscious. And at the very center of the circle is the observing self. And surrounding the observing self are a set of subpersonalities. And these subpersonalities can be either in the middle unconscious where we can find them, or the lower unconscious which we can't see, or the upper unconscious which we can't see. And uh, Asajoli's criticism of Freud was that Freud, he said, uh, essentially, if you think of the psyche as a house with a, a basement, you know, a main floor and an upper floor, that Freud thought that all the dynamics of what was going on were taking place in the basement with the lower drives, you know, uh, and that he, Asajoli, wanted a house with a staircase or an elevator that went to all three floors, the lower unconscious, the middle unconscious, and the upper unconscious. So what Asajoli recommended that we do as a practice 
is uh, you take a piece of paper and you write down your principal subpersonalities that you're aware of. So, you know, are you aware of yourself as, for myself, you know, as a husband, a brother, a son, a father, uh, somebody who works in nonprofit work, uh, somebody interested in philosophy and psychology, someone, you know, uh, the different subpersonalities I'm aware of. And then when you've made your list, what he suggests is that you write each one of these subpersonalities on a separate piece of paper in a circle and put them on the floor in a circle and with a white piece of paper in the middle and you stand in the middle and you practice stepping in and out of these different subpersonalities and you learn what it feels like when you're in one identification or another. So how does it feel to me when I think of myself as my son Josh's father and I step totally into that? How am I with that? You know, how am I in my father? When I think of myself as the husband for 30 years of my wife Charles, how am I with that? When I think of myself as my father and mother's son or as my work at Commonweal, and so what one does when one practices that, because unconsciously, again with Emerson, these things flicker through our mind all the time. But if we learn to consciously step in and out of these different subpersonalities, we learn a much more conscious way of identifying and disidentifying with the different parts of ourselves, right? And so in Asajoli's psychology, there's a simple memnonic that says you wanted to uh, name your subpersonalities. You wanted to claim them, recognize them as parts of yourself. You wanted to tame them, try to get them to work together. And then you wanted to aim them. You name, you claim, you tame, you aim your subpersonalities together to try to take these chaotic parts of ourselves that are often in deep conflict and get them moving in the same direction, right? Okay, now the beauty of Asajoli, oh, and, and by the way, Asajoli said, that we could become easily as neurotic from suppressing higher dimensions of ourselves as we could from suppressing lower dimensions of ourselves. That for Freud, it was only the lower self that people thought of as you know, the source of conflict. But for Asajoli said, look, you may have higher dimensions of yourself that you're unconscious of that have an enormous power and are seeking to express. And if you suppress the higher dimensions of yourself, you can be in just as much neurotic trouble as you, if you suppress the lower. So the reason I like to describe Asajoli is that we can all relate to the subpersonalities like that. But if you then think for a moment that behind each subpersonality of yours is not just your own unique individual subpersonality, there's also an archetype, right? There's the archetype of the father, the archetype of the mother, the archetype of the worker, the archetype of the son, and all these different things. So the capacity to learn to step in and out of the subpersonalities is very like unto, in Hellman's work, the, psych the capacity to step in and out of different archetypal experiences. But the beauty of what Hellman does is that while Asajoli, who kept his esoteric side separate from his psychology um, uh, and therefore didn't talk about his esoteric interests, uh, but uh, if you, if you recognize that behind the subpersonality is an archetype, 
you can get to the sacred dimension of your struggles and your experience. Asajoli only says to you, see if you can learn how to step in and out of these different parts and gradually get them to work together better. Hillman says to us, these reflect archetypal struggles that have been going on among the gods in the Greek pantheon and the Hindu pantheon since the beginning of time. And if we look at that, then our own poor little struggles suddenly have this sacred dimension to them. It's not that it solves the problem, but that we understand that these are the politics of the skies. These are the dimension of ourselves that reflect this. And I think it was Jung who famously said that when we stopped recognizing uh, the gods, they present themselves as pathologies in the, uh, uh, in the uh, psychotherapy room. In other words, when we stop seeing that these are divine forces. A really interesting example of that, uh, fascinating. I mentioned that I was uh, in Grace Cathedral with my wife, Charles, last night. And, and before the performance, um, I wandered around the corner and in one, uh, around the, the cathedral. And in one little corner, but important corner of the cathedral, far left in the back, I found this uh, iconographic portrait of Mary Magdalene by a contemporary painter named Robert Lenz. Um, and uh, I was fascinated to see it there, but it was, you know, a beautiful, beautiful uh, portrait about this size of Mary Magdalene. And so I went home and, uh, and I Googled Mary Magdalene, who I've, of course, run across in many dimensions before. But Mary Magdalene is a very interesting figure in the history of Christianity because for 1,500 years, uh, she was described as a prostitute, you know, uh, uh, and uh, that was who she was seen to be, starting with a misreading of uh, the scripture in 600 by Pope Gregory, I believe, who uh, equated her with, I uh, forget, Mary, some, another Mary who, uh, or another woman who was a prostitute. But in fact, if you read uh, both the, uh, the, the canonic Gospels and above all the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary, who do you think Mary Magdalene was? She was the apostle to the apostle. She was the uh, disciple who Christ loved better than the other disciple. Uh, and she was a woman of deep wisdom, and in the Baha'i faith, she is a profound transmitter uh, of the wisdom of the Christ. Now, it's very interesting that if you look at the history of Christianity, at the very beginning, women played a very, very powerful role in the history of Christianity. And Mary Magdalene, if you think about it, she and John were the only ones who didn't run away when Christ was being crucified. She stayed with Christ during his passion and his suffering. And she was the one who went to find, to see where he was afterward. And she was the one who first saw the risen Christ. And she was the one who brought the good news to the disciples. And in the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary, they say to her, you know, why did Jesus love you better than the rest of us? In fact, in the Gospel of Thomas, they ask uh, Jesus why he loved 
uh, uh, Mary better than the rest of us. And he said, the question really is, why do I not love you as much? You know? So there's this dimension of what happened in archetypal terms was that Christianity uh, became part of the patriarchic frame, and the patriarchic frame required that the archetype of the sacred feminine be diminished. And so it was diminished, and what was it diminished into? That, that Christ's favorite disciple, some would argue his wife, because as a rabbi he should have been married, but that Christ's favorite disciple becomes, in the iconography of the church, a prostitute. And it was only in recent years that she was rehabilitated and given a place of honor, at least in a little corner of Grace Cathedral. You know? So, uh, you know, one of the, the, the archetypal questions of our times is when we look at different spirit and faith traditions, uh, some interesting questions to ask ourselves is, how does this spirit or faith tradition treat the feminine dimension of the sacred? How does this spirit or faith tradition treat the earth? Because there is a deep relationship between the earth and the feminine. And one could well argue that in this period of time, if we do not recover the feminine, if we do not recover the earth, if we do not treat the earth and the feminine as sacred, we're going to have a very difficult time uh, uh, reaching uh, a sustainable uh, uh, life and a sense of uh, the sacredness of what surrounds us. You know, the, uh, the Celtic cross is a circle with the cross in the middle of it. And that was originally a, a, a Celtic, in pre-Christian times, it was, uh, it was a sun god uh, uh, cross. And it's interesting to think of it in terms that we've been thinking about, so that what is it in us that is crucified? Um, it's the struggle in us between the horizontal plane and the vertical transcendent plane. Uh, it's the struggle within us between uh, our experience of the sacred as imminent and our experience of the sacred as transcendent. Uh, and all of us have that struggle. That is to say, if we cease to see it as our personal struggle, that we're not good enough, that we're not this, that, or the other, if we, if we recognize that that the divine is available to all of us, the numinous, you can be an agnostic, you can be an atheist, but it doesn't matter what philosophical or religious or spiritual frame. But if you can see the beauty of the incarnate world uh, laid out before us in truth, and if you can see the vertical, which both goes down into the Dionysian darkness and up into the Apollonian, if both of these dimensions are there, then it is possible to work with that experience of being crucified between them. Um, and it is possible to recognize that out of our suffering in all the great traditions comes a growth of consciousness. Uh, that in yoga, um, you know, Patanjali says, you know, what is yoga? Um, uh, he says, uh, yoga is the acceptance of our suffering as an aid to purification, the study of great wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine within each of us. These three things are yoga in practice. 
So that first of these three parts, the acceptance of our suffering as an aid to purification, what takes place with springtime, what takes place with rebirth, is that a part of us is dying. Something is dying within us. Something is being born within us. That we constantly are in the imminent horizontal plane of our experience in the world that we know and see and walk through every day. And yet also we are in this vertical uh, 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 plane of our experience that goes both dark down into the Dionysian dark and up into the Apollonian light. And the question is how from the suffering that we experience in this cross, uh, which is also in archetypal terms the tree of life, how can we find our way? So, I think I've read just about done and about enough. I think I'll close with uh, two more poems. And then we can talk a little bit. One is from Rilke. I love this poem. For one human being to love another... That is perhaps the most difficult task of all. The work for which all other work is but preparation. It is a high inducement to the individual to ripen. A great claim upon us. Something that chooses us out and calls us to vast things. I'm going to read that again. Because I think for all of us, you know, in my... 30-year marriage and my relationship with my friends at work and my friends and so on and so forth. This isn't about sexuality. This is about uh, just how we be with each other. Uh, For one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult task of all. The work for which all other work is but preparation. The work for which all other work is but preparation. It is a high inducement to the individual to ripen. A great claim upon us, something that chooses us out and calls us to vast things. That line about an inducement to the individual to ripen. My friend at Commonweal, Jennifer Stowell, has a beautiful line she talks about in the group of us that have done the cancer help program at Commonweal for 26 years, a group of staff. She talks about how, over those 26 years, we have seen each other into being. And I love that phrase. That over 26 years, this little group of people who've done uh, 170 week-long retreats together, what's happened to us in those 26 years? We have seen each other into being, right? And I would suggest to you that when he speaks of the greatest task, the most difficult task, is to love another person, the work for which all other work is preparation. Why is that? Because that work is not to change the other person, but to see the other person so that in that act of witness, the other person can experience themselves and come more fully into being. And I feel... I reflect on a 30-year marriage sometimes. And, and one of the things that, for which I'm most grateful about my marriage is that for 30 years, through many changes and many struggles, 
My wife, Charlotte, and I have been seeing each other into being. And I think uh, Rilke is right about the power and challenge of, um, of loving those we're closest to, friends, colleagues, whatever. Here's a beautiful quote, a beautiful poem from Kabir, which is about the whole mystery of what lies beyond. Friend, hope for the guest, that is to say the divine, hope for the guest while you are alive, jump into experience while you are alive, think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break the ropes, your ropes, while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten, that is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, In the next life, you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Believe in the great sound. Kabir says this, when the guest is being searched for, it is the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. Look at me, and you will see a slave of that intensity. So I think I'll stop there and welcome any thoughts or reflections. I know this is a curious talk I've given, but I'm, I've been giving curious talks recently. Just, you know. So you, t- you talked about spirit and soul as yeah. different. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit? Is, is that the, the, the picture, the Apollo picture, and then the Dionysian picture, or what? That's a really interesting question. I drew the analogy to the Apollonian and the Dionysian between spirit and soul, and I think it's probably one that Jung and, and uh, others would agree with. Um, but it is a distinction that traces way, way back. Um, I, I'm not really strong on this, but I believe that you find it in Plotinus. I believe, you know, I believe it goes back to the Greek period. Um, uh, the, the, the soul, the, the, their map was body, soul, spirit. That was their map, you know. And soul was close to the body, and it was that moist, experiential, dark part of ourself that includes all the subpersonalities or all the archetypes or whatever. And spirit is that part of us that shoots upward into, uh, into the divine and into, um, and into purity. And uh, so one of the great questions in psychology is whether, uh, and is whether we can ever leave soul behind or, you know, and um, so, I, and I don't know the answer. I certainly have never been able to leave soul behind. But, you know, but, but Ibn Arabi actually thought you could leave the dark behind, that you could go up into pure light and live, in, live, live as a saint, let's say. But that's a tough gig, you know. 
and most of us don't make it. So since most of us don't make that, then the question is, what is our relationship with our soul? Is it one of constant disappointment that we're not pure, you know, abstract figures? Or are we going to say, no, we were made this way. We were made this way. But for me, Hellman kind of forgets about spirit. He forgets about that part of us is the effort to go beyond the struggle. And that's where I trust what in all the great traditions is the tradition of, of an overarching oneness, which Jung preserved. And for me, without that, I get um, easily car sick or boat sick. I get nauseous because I need a frame. Yeah, yeah. feels hopeless without that. Right, I am. Yes, David. I was going to say, yeah, Michael, you began your talk by talking about wisdom, love, and will. Mm -hmm. And I've been reflecting a lot on the, the will. For, actually, on the drive here, we were talking about the, uh, there's a playground at Dolores Park uh, that was renovated I don't know, two years ago. Um, and when we were living here, uh, we knew the neighbor who came up with that idea. It was just an idea in his head. You know, this an old playground probably hadn't been touched since 1970 and, you know, a little bit poor repair and arsenic in the wood and, you know. Um, and he had this idea and he just started, he, in fact, Cynthia went to one, I think, the first meeting, just his kitchen, I forget where it was. Yeah, 10 people. Just to talk about it. And they started pushing and it got momentum and... Uh, then a big donor came out and contributed, the city contributed a bunch, and boom, all of a sudden it's this gleaming new, beautiful, beautiful playground. And, um, which in turn, I think then, you know, all the hundreds of families who are going there, you know, that's probably going to inspire some other mm -hmm. similar efforts el elsewhere. And I, I, you know, was thinking this week as, as I was driving to work in Sacramento on gay marriage, you know, I, I, I actually called Gavin Newsom just to thank him and tell him how proud I am of him for, you know, taking the lead when he, when he was mayor, you know, of like saying, you know what, it's time to start mm -hmm. this. And just, you know, that kind of led to this unfolding. And so I just began reflecting on the contagious nature of will itself. Once you start and you actually take that first step, um, you know, you're not only executing on your own sort of internal destiny, uh, but you know, there's these ripple effects. That's what's so exciting, the interconnected uh, nature of, of action and, and, and how all of these actions kind of draw upon each other, you know? I don't know if you had any comments on oh, that. Oh, it's, it's so wonderful. And, and, you know, I just want to acknowledge, uh, this is David Hochschild, who is now one of our commissioners on the California Energy Commission, holds the environmental seat, which is one of the best appointments Governor Brown has made. Um, and that's, David was just speaking. And, um, and I'd, I'd like to reflect on that at some length, actually, because um, first of all, I agree with you completely about the contagious nature of, of, of good work, all right? And secondly, um, very often when people think of love and wisdom and leave will or work out, right? But it is in fact work that actually does it in the world. You know, it is, uh, you know, what does the Bible say? It says, by their fruit shall you know them, you know. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, in my experience, 
people's philosophical or spiritual belief system says much less about them than what they actually do in the world. You know, there, there, and I had uh, a meeting with a woman, a remarkable woman in Bolinas, who is a total atheist, but what has she done for the last 15 years of her life? She's run a little uh, six-bed um, uh, care facility uh, in Bolinas for people with advanced chronic illness and who are dying, right? And so with her husband and a few other staff for the last 13, 14 years, she has done this incredible work of actually caring for the dying in our town, right? And so we had a conversation with her about how she did that. And I thought, this sounds like Mother Teresa. And I said to her, you know, do you have a philosophical or spiritual framework? And she said, I'm an atheist, right? Um, so there is an example of somebody for whom you could probably talk to her for weeks about love and will. She wouldn't be very interested. But what she actually does is a work of, of the highest level, from my point of view. Um, so uh, I think uh, karma yoga, uh, which is the yoga of uh, will or work, uh, is an incredibly powerful yoga. And when we, when we look in the, um, in the uh, yoga tradition, for example, uh, at you know, who manifests uh, that in many respects, I was thinking on the way over myself. In the Bhagavad Gita, you could say it's Arjuna uh, who appears uh, in the Gita on his chariot with Krishna, uh, the, the you know, Hindu Christ figure behind him, facing a battle uh, in the field of life between two opposing forces, one representing dark and the other light. And he, he is disconsolate because he has all these friends on the other side. He doesn't want to fight. He says... You know, Krishna, I don't want to fight. You know, I've got all these friends. Even if we won, it would be a disaster area. What am I supposed to do? And Krishna says to him, uh, look, he says, uh, he says, uh, if you run away, uh, you'll be remembered as a coward for the rest of time. You know, he says, uh, and, uh, and uh, you were born for this struggle. You were born for this fight. And... Uh, and so the, the warrior within us, to me, is the dimension of us that represents will. It's the dimension of us that represents um, our work in the world. I'm not, uh, let me take that back. It's the male archetype of that. I think there are probably feminine archetypes that are different. I, I could make that case, too. But it's a strong archetype. In the Cancer Help Program, I tell people uh, when they come for the week, that the single most powerful thing that they bring to transformative week work during the week is the power of their intention. And it is their intention that brought them here after being a long time, you know, that that's what's going to work the transformation is the power of their intention. So for me, um, I've actually seen myself for the last 40 years as basically a karma yoga person, somebody who's current whose best contribution was to be a buttonhole or a pulley and the and the you know was to be somebody who was useful uh, somebody who understood what you've just been de describing as the catalytic power of actual manifestation 
another dimension of that, going to uh, back to Asajoli, is that Asajoli's psychosynthesis tended to be an effort to move up toward transcendence. But one of his greatest students, a, a psychologist named uh, uh, Yeomans on the East Coast, uh, has recently revised Asajoli to say, you know, the movement of ascendance is one thing, but what we really need to do after we've ascended is to bring it back down into reality. And uh, this is also a great Sufi teaching of Ibn Arabi. And the, the, the Sufis say that, the, that those who just go to God, the, the, the voyage is incomplete unless you bring it back into the world, back into service in the world. And when you bring it back into service in the world, you necessarily turn your back to the divine and move back into the act of service. You also find this in the work of uh, Spangler, uh, a wonderful mystic philosopher who, um, who uh, Yeomans quotes, who says that the, our problem, uh, he talks about an incarnational spirituality, and he talks about how our problem is not that we haven't transcended enough. Our problem is that our incarnational work is not complete. So again and again, in my experience, one finds pointers that exactly what you spoke of, which is, the catalytic power of somebody who decides to do one small project and how that in turn ignites others. That's what I've spent my life with. You know, the Cancer Help Program, we've done for you know, 26 years, 170 retreats. It's a tiny little program. But the catalytic power of it across the country and around the world has been just extraordinary. It's encouraged others to say, you know, there's a different way to work with people with cancer. Um, so I'm, um, I am a profound believer uh, in karma yoga and in uh, actually manifesting as best we can uh, in the world, uh, and particularly for those of us who are called to that in one way or another. So thank you for that. Other questions or comments? I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about him. Um, yeah, oh. I couldn't. Yeah, oh, um, Asajoli's um, three, three levels, levels and, and, mm -hmm. and um, examples of those. Okay, so uh, in that map of well, let me step back from that map for one second. I'm always fascinated by the degree to which the maps that we carry of our psychology profoundly affect our experience of who we are, right? So if we carry a behavioral map of our psychology that we're basically like Pavlovian dogs that respond to you know, different inducements, and that's it, that's one experience of ourselves. Or if we carry a, a neurobiology map that we're all about you know, whatever endorphins are flowing through us or whatever, but that's it, you know. Um, what happens? to the archetypes of love, wisdom, and will in those, you know, or other archetypes in those psychologies. Um, if we carry a Freudian map that says, you know, it's really basically all about <coughs> eros and sexuality and the, the, and it needs to be suppressed and sublimated so that you get some culture out of it, but there is no higher unconscious, 
that's a Freudian map, right? Um, Jung, what Jung did is to take a map and say, okay, there isn't just a lower unconscious, there's also these higher spheres. And in his personal experience, which created the Red Book, when he theoretically almost went insane, the years that he uh, went down into this profound exploration of his own psyche, and where he personally experienced the archetypes, which was a transformative experience, um, uh, he, he discovered both the higher archetypes, the wise old man, so on and so forth, as well as the, the lower and darker archetypes. Um, and so um, what Asajoli did was to take, in a sense, that Jungian map and make it simple, which is, you know, to simplify a simpler equation. He took a very complex equation and made it simple so that we could learn from it. So examples of, um, of, uh, the, uh, of the different levels. Uh, if we start with a higher level, the higher unconscious, that might be, um, you know, how do we experience the divine within ourselves? You know, what, what, how does it come down? So, um, in the traditionalist psychologies and philosophies of René Ganon, Fritjof Schoen, and others like them, but this is also the, what Leibniz and Huxley called the perennial philosophy, there's the map of ourselves and of, of, the, of the religious traditions, is that there's, and this is also the map of integral yoga, is truth is one, paths are many. That there's a single source of light, and that that source of light in the different religious traditions comes down and is incarnated in different prophets, Muhammad, Christ, you know, Abraham, Buddha, whoever. And then those prophets give that light in a particular prism to a particular civilization and culture, and then that culture is created in the shape of the particular light that was given to them. Now, what then happens, which is extremely interesting and important, is that in every one of those cultures into which the light came down, a division takes place between the esoteric and the exoteric dimensions of that particular tradition. So the, esoter the, the exoteric thing comes down as a moral code, as dogmas, as you should do this, that, and the other, and that becomes very judgmental, and it becomes bureaucratized and institutionalized, and it's all about telling people how to live and what to do in a moral code. And it also, in, in that, says Jesus is the only one, or Muhammad is the only one, or the Buddha is the only one. Or it becomes very, we've got the truth, it results in this code, that's how it's supposed to be, right? The esoteric dimension in every tradition is the one that says, no, wait a minute, it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all the other ways that this is manifested. And, and, and as the esoteric Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or whatever practitioner, I see that the light is the same light in all, okay? And so what 
uh, the traditionalists, René Ganon, Fritjof Schoen, and, and Brother David Standel Rast have all said, is that the vitality of any religious tradition will depend on the skill with which the tension between the esoteric and the exoteric dimension of that tradition is managed. Because if the esotericists, as they often do, uh, persecute the esotericists, uh, they can destroy it. So, for example, in Islam, you notice that a lot of the attacks are on Sufi temples and Sufi traditions. Why is that? Because the Sufis are, tend to represent the esotericists. They represent the, you know, that inner kernel of fire that began the whole thing. And for the people who said, no, there's a single truth and a single dogma, they're very threatened by that. So that, you can see that in every tradition. So taking that back from the tradition level to within ourselves, right, what is it within each of us that represents, on the one hand, the exoteric moral code, this is how it's supposed to be, this is how we're supposed to live, and that fire that burns within each of us that ultimately recognizes that it is one with the source, that just as the source informed the prophets, that source also informs that fire within each of us. So you could say that that fire is in the upper unconscious, all right? And you could say that the moral codes or whatever that we live by are in the middle unconscious. And then you could say that the primate platform on which we're all built, you know, chimpanzees or bonobo chimps or whatever version of it human beings were, and all that we bring to it, just, you know, what we naturally are and what we as individual uniquely have become and there's this constant struggle within us between the recognition of our birthright, Hafiz, you know, uh, the, 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 the wild one who's throwing parties in a treehouse and a limb on our heart. So there's that divine here, and there's that at the lower unconscious, the drunken, I don't know if you want to say lower, but the, the, the part of us that just wants to just be, you know, and then there is our sense in the middle of unconscious of, okay, we live in a civilization, we live in a time where there are certain norms. How are we supposed to be in this? And so this relationship between these parts of us, and then they are constellated in the different subpersonalities. And the, the middle unconscious is the place where we're able to actually be aware of them. But we also know that there are dimensions of ourselves that are in the dark space or up in the light. And uh, we can sense their action on us, but we can't necessarily see them directly. Well, thank you all for coming. It's very kind of you to sit with me in this exploration. I'm very grateful. Hope you all have a wonderful Easter, Spring, Passover, whatever it is. May we all be reborn. May we all be reborn. <laughs>